Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome back to Behind the Knife. We are greatly pleased today to have Dr. Danny Chu. He's a professor of cardiothoracic surgery in the Department of CT Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also the Director of Cardiac Surgery at the VA in the Pittsburgh Healthcare System. Dr. Chu, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, So for all our listeners, this is actually the first time we have a cardiac surgeon coming on BTK. So it's actually quite an honor for us. Uh, and, uh, you know, our listeners range from anyone from medical students in training up to residents uh, to staff all across multiple specialties. Uh, so for all, for all our listeners, we'd like to start with how'd you get to where you are and what's your daily practice like these days? Sure. Um, I, I went to um, undergraduate. I was a mechanical engineer at, uh, at Caltech in Pasadena, California. And uh, I um, went to medical school at Tufts University School of Medicine. And uh, originally, I had thought about doing emergency medicine. And I actually changed my mind several times from emergency medicine to trauma surgery. Uh, That was sort of my my choice at that time in medical school. It's kind of interesting where where your mentors really matter. Um, Because of my interest in trauma surgery, I actually decided to um, do my general surgery training at UCSD. Um, at that time, Dave Hoyt was the um, uh, director of trauma there and the vice chair, and uh, UCSD had a really um, you know, a strong trauma surgery presence. So I did general surgery training at UC San Diego, and after three years, I decided to um, pursue basic science laboratory research full-time for two years. And I was fortunate that uh, our program at UCSD at that time allowed me to do that. The thought of cardiac surgery never entered my mind until I did research where I just happened to lay in the lab of a, uh, my mentor and currently uh, also a good friend of mine, Patricia Thistleway. She's actually a board-certified cardiothoracic surgeon who at that time was a junior faculty and ran a basic science laboratory in molecular genetics in cardiovascular surgery. Um, so um, she really mentored me, and we connected, and we stay friends all the way till today. Uh, and she really got me interested in, in cardiac surgery, and, you know, that's sort of where my interest came in and, and never went back from that point. Um, after, so I spent seven years, including two years of basic science research in UCSD, and then mashed at the uh, cardiothoracic surgery residency at Baylor College of Medicine with uh, uh, the surgery uh, with uh, uh, Michael D. E. DeBakey. Uh, luck, luck has, basically, um, I was lucky that at that time there was a lot of turmoil in Houston, whereas, you know, most of you may or may not have known the 
the saga between Dr. Cooley and Dr. Baker in Houston. So I was I became the first resident at Baylor to cross train in uh, with Dr. Cooley's clan, clan at Texas Heart. And right now it's actually a combined uh, residency, Baylor uh, College of Medicine, Texas Heart Institute. So I was really fortunate to go through a two-year residency and and having trained with Baylor group, which included Ken Maddox, Matt Wall, uh, as well as Andy Anderson group, and and also Dr. Cooley's group, Texas Heart. So after two years uh, of cardiothoracic surgery training, I was recruited to be on faculty at the Baylor College of Medicine. Um, that was my first job back in uh, 2006. Um, and um, I, I was there for about six years, and, and an opportunity came up in Pittsburgh uh, uh, for the director of cardiac surgery at VA here, and I um, moved to the Pittsburgh area about six years ago, um, and that's where I am right now. In terms of my, my daily life, um, I've been in academic medicine uh, my entire career, so uh, I enjoy working with the residents. Uh, I would say my I do about 150 to 200 hearts a year. My current practice is 100% cardiac. Uh, I don't do any general thoracic surgery, so um, it, it's a bit different um, in the University of Pittsburgh because we are our own department. We are completely separate from the Department of Surgery. Uh, my boss, Dr. Jim Lukatich, who's our chair, uh, established our separate department about 10 years ago. So our department is comprised of three divisions, one of which is general thoracic, one is adult cardiac, one is congenital heart. So as a cardiac surgery division faculty, I do 100% adult cardiac. That essentially translates to about maybe three or four cases a week. One day is dedicated to clinic day. Um, now my, you know, I usually get to the hospital around 6.30, 7 o'clock. Uh, I will round with the residents and, and go over pertinent data. Uh, and the cardiac surgery cases are pretty long in general. Um, they run about five to six hours, uh, depending on the complexity of the case. Um, so generally speaking, we'll come out of the operating room about two or three o'clock in the afternoon, and then we'll do our afternoon rounds, see consults, and about a twelve-hour day is sort of pretty much average for me. Uh, and currently, I take call on weekends. I share calls with my uh, UPMC University colleagues. Uh, I take call about once a month. Uh, so it's things are going very well in terms of scheduling and. I'm very fortunate to have uh, a resident, currently a PGY-6 cardiothoracic surgery resident rotating with me. And uh, as our integrated programs get more mature, well, we do currently have integrated uh, cardiothoracic surgery residency programs um, that uh, at University of Pittsburgh, who uh, about six years ago, so our I-6 residents are getting more to the senior level, so they may start rotating on my, my uh, service in about a year or two. So that's a little bit about what I do and um, the, my daily life and where I've been and where I am right now. So we have a fair amount of junior staff that listen to the podcast. 
you mentioned very briefly about something that uh, happened in you that's not too unfamiliar, and that's changing jobs relatively early in your career. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the decision-making that went into play? And also, were you worried at all? Were you hesitant? Were there some learning points that you look back that maybe you, uh, you would have kind of given to other people in a similar predicament? Yeah, so um, I... I was pretty fortunate to to stay where I trained because people sort of know me. And that's sort of a double-edged sword. Um, sometimes when you stay where you train, they always look at you as a, you know, or you're always a resident. They never really let you grow. But in my case, it's the complete opposite. I, you know, the first day my partners at the VA in Houston sat me down and said, look, we're going to treat you equally, which and they have. So it was really difficult for me to leave. I really mature and had a great time starting even July 1st, the first day as attending. I wasn't looking on leaving. This was probably six years into my junior faculty. This is back in 2012. So I was six years into my first job. And, you know, I was assistant professor and I did the usual, publish, wrote papers, educate, etc., good outcomes. I was operating and I went to my boss at that time and essentially said, you know, I, these are the things I did and I respectively request that I be promoted. Um, you know, what do I need to do to go to the next level as associate professor? And he told me, you know, times are tough. Um, I have no doubt you're a great faculty. We're going to get you promoted. But unless you have another offer, I, I'm not there's no way we're going to give you any raises. So even at that time, I, I didn't want to leave. But um, from sort of, you know, going to various meetings, mentoring residents and research, that's where opportunities came about. Um, people start to kind of recognize what you do. And, and um, you know, one of my good friends essentially came up and said, look, I got this opportunity in Pittsburgh. I know you don't have any friends and family. Do you want to come check it out? And my thought was there was nothing to lose. First interview is over as a freebie. Um, but I came and I really was, was hesitant. But uh, because it's such a small circle, I really did my due diligence and, and really do the research about University of Pittsburgh. My mentor at San Diego trained at University of Pittsburgh. My good friend just, you know, at the same year as I am also trained here. So I did a lot of digging, and at the same time, I called a previous chief at the VA because it's such a small circle. I pick up the phone, I knew who he was, and the the positive remained positive, but the negative, at least at that time, I was convinced that they were being fixed. So um, I, I w- my my advice would be, um, you know. Nobody gives you what you deserve. You got to go out and, 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 and look for it. If, if, for a junior faculty, if you stay in one position, and you, nobody's going to come up and say, great job, Joe Blow. We're going to promote you. You got to show what you got and say, look, this is the stuff I got. You know, I'm ready to go to the next level, which is not unusual. Five to ten years is sort of the associate, assistant's associate professor mark. Um, and um, they are double AMC salary scales. Um you know, that that's freely available and um, that you really know what your worth is. And, and for a, a, a quality chair to want to recruit you, it speaks volume of, you know, what your current institution is. But I, I, my advice would be, I, I, you know, I, I was a bit hesitant, but I knew that 
the position was solid. They had good leaderships. And um, so it was a bit tough for my family to adjust. But but I think, you know, turn, looking back, it was the best move I've, I, I've ever made. Um, coming to this position really, from a technical standpoint, really propelled me into the next level in terms of the complexity of the cases. Because, you know, at, at Baylor, for better or worse, I, I was sort of being um, – um, they were overprotecting me a bit. They, you know, it was hard for me to kind of go to the next level and do more more complex complex cases. Um, so yeah, that's a really cool lesson in uh, yeah. one advocating for yourself and two doing your homework before you jump into the next stage. Um, I'd like to go back to something you had mentioned about you know being the first resident to cross train. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what was it like operating with some of the legends like Dr. Cooley, Dr. DeBakey? Uh, what were some of the lessons you took away and, you know, some of the philosophies that you've now incorporated into the way you practice? So, you know, when, when I was at Baylor, Dr. DeBakey uh, is not, wasn't operating anymore, but he still um, goes to his office 7 a.m. Every, every morning. But at that time, Cooley still operated. So... What I took away from Dr. Cooley is that physical exam trumps everything. On rounds, he would round with us every morning at uh, CVICU at Texas Heart. And every morning, he would put his hand on the patient's leg. Um, none of his patients had Swanigan's catheter. And he would say, if the patient has warm extremity and he would look at the urine and good urine output, they got great cardiac output. So that, that lesson really still to this day stuck with me. And it, it had changed. It really changed my practice. I, I've taken someone back for cardiac tamponade despite what the swan readings were, and I was right. The swan was misreading, giving me a cardiac output of 10. But on exam, the patient was cool, clammy, ice cold extremity, urine output dropping. I say something's not right. But at the same time, I'll also educate my personal, my own residents that never believe a swan. If, if someone you saw you consulted for cardiogenic shock and you put and you examine the extremities and they're warm, they're not in cardiogenic shock. They will not have warm extremities. Um, you know, so so what I took away from Cooley was Dr. Cooley trained the era where there was no Swanigan's catheter. So everything was based on listening to heart, examining, and, and, and that's what, what I take from Dr. Cooley. The um, even though I never operated with Dr. DeBakey, I, I was trained, my mentors were direct descendants of DeBakey. You know, Ken Maddox, Matt Wall, Joe Caselli. So what they taught me was Dr. DeBakey has zero tolerance for sloppiness. He expects perfection from everybody. And, and as long as you strive for perfection at every level, you will go no wrong. So that's one lesson I, I, I take from that. So, Dr. Chu, one thing we want to talk to you about is, you know, you're a busy cardiac surgeon, but we also see you on uh, that you're involved with many journal um, journals and editorial boards. How do you make time for this, and how do you advise younger surgeons who are interested in these types of opportunities? So, it's um, unfortunately, I I don't know whether or not you you know many of you on the show know about sort of work productivity. I I'm not the highest paid surgeon here, and I don't want to be because in order to get pay a lot of money, people operate a lot. That's not what I'm all about. You know, if, if I could make probably three or four times more in prior practice or even the academia where we have surgeons in our department who does many, many more cases and he gets paid a lot more than I do, but that's not what I'm about. So all I'm trying to say is your time is how you want to make it. 
if, if, if you want to expand your academic career, you're, you like you know, mentoring residents, writing papers, get an auditorial board, you are going to be operating less. And you are unfortunately going to pay less because nowadays, you know, even at the big academic centers, um, cases generate income for the hospital. And that's the ugly truth about what we do. You know, so so if you are the person who is not going to do many cases, but you enjoy doing research, writing papers, your pay is not going to be as much as the next person who does, you know, more cases. But at the same time, he or she who the, who operates more is not going to have time to do to do your editorial board issues to 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 get on these committees, and that may not be their focus. So it really depends on what you're looking for as a junior faculty, and kind of set the tone for yourself. So so A is when you take your first position, you got to decide what you want to do in your life. You know, do you want to just operate? You know, I I have friends who. On the day that they don't operate, they start to get fidget. They they look around and say, "God, I wish I have a case." On the days I don't operate, it's great. I <laughs> go online, I review papers, I get research ideas, I meet with residents, I talk about the research projects. It's great for me. I love it. But at the same time, I enjoy being in the operating room. So it's a it's it's a balance that I achieve, and I really am glad that I chose that path early on. Um, so determine early on on what you want your career to be. Number two, how do you get involved in that? It's going to meetings. You know, that's, that's how I got to know the behind the knife podcast people. It's going to meetings, being socialized. If you're a good person, good things will happen to you. All my positions and editorial boards, it's from word of mouth. I never went and, and applied, said, hey, I want to be on editorial board so-and-so. It's people know you, people think you're a good person, and then they review your work, they know you've done good reviews, they'll invite you. When, you know, as soon as you develop some street credit in the academic center, they're going to invite you to, to join the committees, join the editorial boards. I, I find that personally, if you really, you know, just be a nice person, um, don't kiss up and step down, but... Be nice to everybody at every level. Things could benefit you at some point. So I think I think that's going to be the best advice I give you for the residents or the junior faculty. The people who kiss us up and step down at one point, things are going to come back and bite you. That is fantastic advice. Yeah, Doctor Chu, we kind of want to walk into our dissection of the day now. Uh, sure. Specifically with you, we want to talk about uh, coronary artery bypass grafts. And this is mainly the basics for general surgeons. Uh, you know, we have a wide listenership from medical students to senior staff. Uh, but just we haven't discussed this one behind the knife before, and we'd like to kind of go through it with you. Um, so just starting off on this topic, um, what would you say would be the elective and emergent indications for a cabbage? So elective indication uh, from a broader scope, I mean, this this topic in itself, indication could be a whole hour lecture, but I want to kind of <laughs> just give you a three-minute summary of it. Elective indication is someone with stable angina, someone with multivessel coronary disease, and that are that, that have significant um, severity, meaning it's difficult, it's not amenable to percutaneous options. So in general, diabetics, Multivessel disease, diabetics, and left main, and people with low EF, those are all indications that cabbage 
or coronary artery bypass grafting will do better than percutaneous intervention. That is sort of the basics. Anything such, you know, these people have stable angina, then becomes elective. Um, if they have unstable pattern angina, meaning that their pattern used to be, you know, once a week and now is more frequent, when they come in unstable pattern, it becomes a little bit more urgent. Urgent meaning that you'll operate on them while they're in the hospital, while they came in usually with acute coronary syndrome, which by definition is unstable pattern angina. And emergent cabbages are very, very rare, um, you know, mainly because of the percutaneous interventions and the stents are so prevalent and so good now that I very rarely operate in the middle of the night for emergency coronary artery bypass grafting. There are other emergency cases that we do in cardiac surgery that sort of be beyond the scope of what I'm talking about now. But I would say most, I would say probably two-thirds of uh, cabbages I do are elective and a third of them are probably urgent, meaning I do them while the patients are in-house. Um, but they're not emergent. Emergents are very extremely rare. Emergent situations are usually patients who are in somewhat of a cardiogenic shock, um, but those are pretty rare. Can you define for us unstable angina? So unstable pattern angina is it's if, you, if you never had angina before and this is your first time, by definition, that's, a, that's unstable angina. Or if you have it pretty much three times a week for the last three months, and all of a sudden now you have it at rest two or three times a day, it changes the pattern, then that's unstable angina. That is usually a sign that the plaques in the coronaries are, 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 are rupturing and it's not behaving right and some, something may be thrombosing, et cetera. So and any you, change in pattern. Great. Thank you for that. And you kind of touched on it already, but what are the most common vessels that are bypassed? And can you talk us through the meaning of when we hear a quadruple or even a quintuple bypass, what that means? Yeah, so so um, there are the coronary arteries are like branches. They they they're literally like the you know vessels and the legs, the profundas, SFA. They're branches. So so the the basic anatomy is right and left coronary artery. Um, the right coronary artery usually gives off uh, blood supplies to the right ventricle and the posterior ventricular septum. That's usually the pattern. The left coronary artery usually is more important. It gives out about two-thirds of the heart, which includes the left anterior descending artery, which supplies anterior to ventricular septum, and the left circumflex artery, which goes behind the heart and supplies the lateral wall of the left ventricle. So to sort of briefly conceptualize this, the left coronary artery usually supplies two-thirds of the heart, the right supplies to the other third, um, even though the, the patient had two ventricles. Um, now, generally speaking, quadruple or double bypass, the number of bypass means that how many arteries you're bypassing. Um, if you put a graph to the left anterior descending or the LAD, that's one bypass. If you put a graph to the distal right coronary artery or the RCA, that's another bypass. So when people talk about triple bypass, means that the surgeon did three bypasses to three different arteries. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's all right, 
or all left artery. It just means that they bypass three different or named arteries. Great. And what are the most common conduit options that you are uh, currently using? So the, um, the, the standard conduit is the left internal mammary artery, which we harvest and leave it in situ, meaning it comes up. We'll leave the left internal mammary artery directly connected to the left subclavian artery, and that bypasses, we'll, we'll put that on the uh, LAD or the left anterior descending artery. That bypass in itself is the longest lasting graft that has been out even the best percutaneous intervention in the drug and the best drug eluding stents. So Lima to the LAD is the gold standard of bypasses to the L- to the LAD. That's the most common and in fact for all cabbages you should really achieve about 100% Lima to the LAD bypass rate. Um, if you put a vein graft on an LAD, um, it, it wouldn't last as long. The Lima to the LAD has a patency of greater than 95% about 15 years. So and, that's the most common that we use. And um, the other territories, uh, generally what we use is Otago's reverse Saffron's vein grafts. And the proximal inflow will come directly from the ascending aorta. And obviously the distal bypass will be distal to the point of blockage on the coronary artery. And again, because our audience is uh, very widely, just a couple basic questions on that. When you say reverse saphenous vein graft, what do you mean by reverse? And the second question is, do you skeletonize out your, your internal mammary? Yeah, so um, I'll answer the second question first. I, I do personally skeletonize it. The data, it's actually plus or minus in terms of pedicle versus skeletonized. Pedicle essentially means that you take the associated veins along with the internal mammary artery. There are two veins associated with the left internal mammary artery, the medial internal mammary vein and the lateral vein. I was trained at Baylor to take a pedicle. There are some advantages and disadvantages, both pedicle versus skeleton, but the only thing that has been shown in a prospective randomized trial fashion is that the amount of postoperative chest wall pain is less if you skeletonize it. Um, so that's about it. It doesn't really tell you about patency. There's really the conflicting data about patency. The downside of skeletonizing is you could injure the lima while you're dissecting it. Um, the upside of skeletonizing is it's longer. It's more flexible. So there, I would say half-half. You know, most surgeons do one way or another depending on how comfortable they are. But my practice, I currently skeletonize everything. But when I was at Baylor, I, I, I pedicle it. Great. So that's the second question. The, the first question in terms of reverse saphenous vein graft, the vein conduits in your body, with the exception of pulmonary veins, all have valves, one-way valves that allow blood to return back to the, left, to the right atrium. These include the veins in the legs or the greater saphenous vein. Greater saphenous vein is part of the superficial venous system in the legs that has, has valves, and, and what the valves return um, toward, return blood towards the body. So 
in a way, the flow of the blood in the legs, it's, it's opposite from where the arterial flow is. Uh, what we do is we'll take a piece of the vein conduit from the leg, the greatest saphenous vein, namely, and we'll reverse the direction so that the flow so that the flow will flow from the ascending aorta to the uh, distal coronary artery instead of the other way around. Make sure that it's because the valves are all one way. Uh, that's the reason why you have to reverse the vein a different direction. Great. And one thing we hear a lot about is uh, on-pump versus off-pump bypasses. Can you tell us the difference in, in where the current literature lies today on that? So, so I, I have a great story from Dr. Cooley. He, he have all these little tidbits about off-pump. Dr. Cooley actually did off-pump before off-pump was popular. He just didn't write about it. The uh, reason I knew that is because I, I, when I was at Baylor, I did a uh, redo cabbage on a veteran whom Cooley operated on, I, I want to say, in the 1980s or late 70s. I uh, couldn't get the op report. Uh, it was so long ago, and um, clearly he did a limited LED, and um, it was patent. But the patient ended up having blockages in or, or other arteries. So I went in, and I um, didn't find any cannulation stitches hmm. anywhere. So I went up to Cooley. I said, Dr. Cooley, you know, I did, I did a patient that you operated on 20 years ago. And I didn't find any cannulation stitches, so I bet you were doing off-pump before off-pump got popular. He said, he said, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's really a pain, a pain to behind because imagine, son, you're operating on the, you're working on the engine. Off-pump is, it's akin to working on the engine with the engine running. So um, in terms of technical aspect of the off-pump, it's about 10 times more difficult than on-pump. <laughs> Does it take much um, longer? Yeah, obviously the the advantage is tremendous, right? The, you don't have to put them on bypass. Uh, the 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 bypass machine it's it's bad. I mean, Dr. Cooley just said every time you put someone on bypass, they start to die. They all these cytokines releases and the body start to die overall if you put them on bypass. So the longer you're on bypass, the worst outcome you'll do. That's been proven. So Alpum got popular um, probably a couple de- decades ago uh, because of the avoidance of point bypass machine. Since then, several multi-center prospective randomized trials, including the United States, including Europe, including one of the most highly cited um, cooperative studies that the VA participated in, uh, namely the RUBY trial, which stands for, um, I forget what it stands for, but essentially it's, it's, it's a multi-center trial published in England Journal of Medicine showing that the theoretic advantages of pump just hasn't been panned out. There's no advantages uh, in terms of blood transfusion, in terms of cognitive dysfunction, in terms of pulmonary function in terms of IC stay, but there is actually a slight disadvantage in terms of grab patency from the off-pump cohort. So the data currently is for the written boards um, is that off-pump is to be used as a 
different modality as a necessity uh, because it has ne- it has not been shown as non inferior in prospective randomized trials. Um, RPOM is another way of doing uh, coronary bypass. If in the event that you have you cannot cannulate or you cannot put them on bypass for whatever technical reasons you think was unsafe. Um, with that being said, for centers that does 99% of the cabbages off pump, they have excellent results. So unless you're a surgeon that do all your cabbages off pump, um, you should, the standard practice right now is on pump, arrest the heart. But uh, they are still about probably 10 to 20% of surgeons, cardiac surgeons across the country who still do cabbages off pump. But those are the centers who do nearly 100% of the cabbages off pump. And they continue to have good results because it is technically more challenging. So um, the data right now is that uh, the advantage is not there. At best, it's a non-inferior approach. But um, the boy answer should be the standard approach is point bypass with a rest of the heart for cabbage. Mm, that's really interesting. So one of the things that I find fascinating about cardiac surgery is that at every single step, it just seems like something catastrophic can occur if it doesn't go according to plan. And so even something as simple and as routine as a cannulation stitch, I feel like could have catastrophic consequences. Could you walk us through how you think about putting in these cannulation stitches? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's one thing that's that's I see very different from uh, general surgery, trauma surgery, and cardiac surgery. Um, so, so cannulation stitches. Because the reason why cannulation stitches can have catastrophic problems, because generally speaking, people put cannulation stitches in the distal ascending aorta. So, from an anatomic standpoint, this location is near the base of where the innominal artery takes off. Right, so imagine we're putting a 21 or 24 French cannula, which translates to about eight, you know, seven to eight millimeter size cannula in that area. That's a big hole in the aorta, right? Um, if you don't put your stitches in correctly and you end up tearing the aorta at that area, there's really no way to fix it unless you really cool the patient down and do circulatory arrest. What that means is it's another whole host of a big operation. Circulatory arrest um, essentially means that you will cool the patient down to 18 degrees and suspend, you kill the patient, there's no blood flow, you fix the hole in the area, and then you start to warm the patient up. So that's a significant, significant problem because there's really no way to fix a big hole in the distillation aorta at the base of the nominal artery. Um, so that's the issue. Um, that's why I always tell my residents, unless you have to, I will cannulate as proximally as possible. Because if, if, if you were to get in trouble, at least if you're away from the nominal artery, you can at least put a partial cooling clamp on uh, and fix that problem and not occlude a nominal artery to give the patient a catastrophic stroke. Um, so that's the reason. It's because anatomically it's in a bad location. Uh, one question I had is, 
you know, we use saphenous vein a lot in general surgery and vascular surgery to repair uh, SFA or popliteal injuries. It seems to be a, a very large uh, caliber uh, vein to be using for coronary arteries. Do you guys just uh, harvest it more distally or do you somehow, uh, art, you know, modify it? No, we, we, we harvest. Uh, you're absolutely right. The, um, whenever the veins are big it, and it, it doesn't match the, um, the coronary artery, you're going to get slow flow and you're not going to get great vein patency. So there, 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 there are many people and many trials are looking at other potential conduits, one of which is radial artery. That has really not been panned out um, uh, to be a more superior conduit than the uh, saphenous vein. Um, and more and more data now are emerging in terms of using bilateral internal memory arteries. Hmm. So the, the short answer is no, we, we will harvest whatever that the caliber is good. And I actually agree with you that, you know, five, six millimeter vein conduits are less ideal. The best vein conduits are, you know, three millimeter conduits. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, so Dr. Chu, at this point, we'd like to transition over to the tips and tricks segment where we ask the expert uh, in their area of expertise to help us walk through some of the sticky situations that we could find ourselves in. Um, in particular with you, since we're on the topic of cabbages, we wanted to ask you to take us through your technique of sewing a vascular anastomosis on the heart. Yeah, so there are many, many techniques, but I, I'll tell you how I was taught. This is sort of the Baylor, and, and, and the Baylor way. So for I'll, I'll walk you through a distal anastomosis. Um, what what I do distally is um, so so for the classification's sake, we'll call. I always spatulate the vein graft to look a little bit like a diamond shape instead of on floss. So if you if you cut it in about forty five degree angle, the um, the the toe it's going to be the um, the distal edge of the vein graft and the heel. Uh, that's going to be the opposite end. So what I do is um, I'll do three stitches around the corners uh, because the corner stitches are the most critical stitches for coronary anastomosis um, because if you take too wide of a bite, you can narrow that anastomosis. So the three stitches I would usually take, start on the vein, outside in on the vein, at about the, um, in the heel area at the 530 position, I call that the 45 degree bite, outside in, and then I'll take that down to the target artery uh, and go inside out on the artery in the same position, and then I'll come out outside in on the vein at the six o'clock position. I'll take that needle out and I'll come down to the target artery also at the um, corresponding position, which is the heel of the anastomosis, inside out. I always go inside out on the artery. And then the third bite will be outside in on the vein as I come across the vein to the about 630 position. And then I'll come out and on the target artery will be the inside out bite on the, the other corresponding side. So... Once, you, once I put three stitches, I'll parachute down with a 7-0 proline with a distal. And then I'll take forehand. I'll start sewing 
the distal corneal anastomosis from the heel so towards me, always so, always so all the anastomosis towards you. That's that's the important thing. So towards you, outside in on the artery, on the vein, inside out on the artery, all the way until I get to the the toe of the anastomosis. I come across the toe, and as you looking at anastomosis, you will start sewing in a counterclockwise direction. Once you come across 180 degrees, go and then go three stitches to the um, to the right side of osmosis, then I'll switch hand. I'll take the other stitch and I'll go outside in on the artery now, just for a few bites. I always try to do forehand, that's sort of the coolie way. Coolies always say, why forehand if you know why backhand if you go forehand? Now the only time that I don't I don't go outside in an artery is if the, if the artery has significant disease, then you worry about putting outside in bites and lifting the plaque internally. If that's the case, then I will go backhand all the way across the toe of the anastomosis, counterclockwise, all the way to the heel and complete the anastomosis. So you use just one double arm suture? I use one double arm suture. I, I tie one knot. Tie one knot. Mm-hmm. Um, just, what kind of suture is it? I use a 7 proline for the distal. And then just things that we talk about a lot uh, in surgery and just, you know, minute details. How do you load your needle and, and do you cant it at all? Yeah, so so cardiac surgery is very positional dependent. Um, you know, I always tell the resident that um, um, you need to figure out what your bite is in terms of needle angle. Coronary arteries are extremely friable. So... So oftentimes, um, you will be doing sort of pushing it. Um, you shouldn't apply too much pressure to the anastomosis. If, if, if you, the most difficult part of the coronary operation is finding the correct target. If you end up opening the wrong target, that's a, usually a recipe for disaster. Because you don't have, you know, when you operate on the heart, usually operating upside down in a deep hole. Um, it's a little different, very different from vascular anastomosis where it's it's sitting flat and sometimes it's deep in the abdomen, but it's usually sitting flat. Coronary anastomosis are usually upside down because you're holding the heart up. So so it really, you know, what I, I usually tell the residents to choke the needle back all the way at the end because that sense gives you the most uh, amount of freedom. If you choke, you know, Vascular surgeon usually taught, teaches me to kind of, you know, technically speaking, put the needle driver about two-thirds towards the end. But I find that in coronary distal anastomosis, if you hold it more towards the end, it gives you more of a freedom of how you manipulate your angles. Um, so that's sort of my, from a technical aspect of it. And number two is because our coronary anastomosis are so fine, they're usually, the coronary arteries are usually 1.5 2 millimeters in size. The less you grab, the better you are. So a lot of times, even using your non-dominant hand to push down on the tissue next to it will give you a little bit more exposure. Even 1 or 2 millimeter will mean the world when you're doing a coronary. So sometimes, oftentimes on a friable tissue, I don't even touch the adventitia of the coronary artery. I'll just kind of push push down with my with my non-dominant to expose for me 
And another sort of technical aspect is exposure is extremely important in coronary artery. It's you don't necessarily have to grab where you're operating on. So for instance, the the coronary anastomosis, the best exposure for the heel and the toe, most residents, when they start with me, they want to grab next to the heel and next to the toe. But you don't expose the artery that way. The best exposure is actually, you know, um, on the side of it. It's, um, it's akin to when you have a, a, a paper, um, when you have a bag, when you have a Ziploc bag, and you grab hold of a Ziploc bag right in the center and you hold it open, That's, that maneuver is really going to open up the corners as opposed to if you grab the Ziploc bag right next to the corner. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. So, so, so that seems really intuitive, but I have to submit to you, 100% of the residents <laughs> always make that mistake. They always want to grab where they're trying to operate. Yeah, that makes But sense. it's all about exposure, right? One last uh, nitpicky detail. Yeah. Uh, how do you reload your needles? Do you, you know, pull it up and, and manually reload it, or do you yeah, grab it? So, so I know the vascular surgeon on the call is going to cringe, but I always um, grab the seven O needle with my non-dominant hand and rotate my non-dominant hand, and come out, and then reload right down there next to the anastomosis. Because a trick is, if your angle is correct, your next bite is going to be a similar angle as your last bite. Okay, so yeah. so what I don't, what I do is after I put the bite in. I'll grab it. I'm right-handed. So after I put the bite in, I'll take the pickup from my left hand, non-dominant hand, grab the needle, and rotate it out with a curve from the needle, and I'll load the needle right there next to the anastomosis for the, my next bite. I'll, I'll angle it just the same as my last bite. Then I pull, I pull the string up. Well, thank you for all those uh, details. It's something we don't talk about a lot, but I think is very important. We're going to go to the final portion of our podcast. It's called The Final Five. These are some uh, fun things to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, the first question is, Is uh, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what type of music? I, I do. I, I, I do listen to music. Um, the only time I don't listen to music is when I'm cross-clamped. But aside from that, I listen to music. And my musical taste is very eclectic. Um, I listen to anywhere from opera to trans to hardcore rap to pop music. I, I might listen to all kinds of stuff, 80s music. I usually listen to Pandora, so I have like 20 stations on my Pandora, <laughs> you know, hard rock, everything. That's so, great. <laughs> so that's, that's why I do. <laughs> uh, question number two, what hobbies, talents, or interests do you have outside of the operating room? I, I, um, I love skiing. Uh, in fact, I just came back from a ski trip with my son. Um, so I, I love skiing and and I love playing tennis um, and smoke cigars with friends. You know, that's that's <laughs> what we do at meetings. <laughs> I actually pick up smoking cigar in San Diego with my chair, Dr. Musa. Yeah, I, I, we're, this is a Jason. I just kind of joined, but we already told the story. This is how this is how we, we met, actually. Me and yes. Wu at a conference at a cigar bar. That's how we first met you. So, uh, yeah. so that's fantastic. And, and 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 you know, it's it's you know, being social, being nice, and that's and go to meetings and, and meet people. That's sort of how you advance your academic career. And one one advice I will have that I didn't know as a junior faculty is that you actually need and and the promotion committee pride on 
people write you letters that are outside your specialty. So when they see, you know, wow, you have, you know, all these, you know, chairmen and chairwomen across the country who write you letters. I'm like, yeah, I've met them all these meetings, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, so that's something that I didn't know until you actually come from promotion. I said, well, this is easy. I know a bunch of people that's outside my specialty. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's but awesome. most people, we, you know, most junior faculty, they're just so entrenched in their own specialty. They, they really, you know, have a hard time doing that. But that, so, so I think if you're academics, that's what you need. And, 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 um, and that's how you, you, you get people to, you know, to support you. All right, question number three. Um, tell us about a, um, a favorite vacation or someplace awesome you've been uh, that uh, stands out in your memory. Oh, I, I went back to China. I, I was born in Taiwan. I, I never been to China on the mainland. I went to China um, last year, uh, spring break. I took my family there. It was just really outstanding. Um, you know, we, so much history. 5,000 years of history, stuff that you learn about in books. You know, we went to Great Wall, we went to the palace. It just is really, I mean, words couldn't describe the history. You know, I, I love traveling. So so that's that's one thing immediately that stood out to me in terms of, um, you know, being being Asian and, and Chinese descent. And, and that really, really, really outstanding experience for me, my son, my family. So... Great. N- number four, what would you be doing if you were not in medicine? I would be, I'm a mechanic of the body. If I'm not in medicine, I would be a mechanic of the car. <laughs> I am a big car guy. Um, I, my goal is to, when I retire, I want to take a, a mechanics course and just restore a, a 1960 Corvette convertible. What kind of car do you currently drive? I have a Jeep Wrangler. That's my daily drive. <laughs> yeah. Great. So I, I off-roading, you know, I go just, it's like a tank. It's <laughs> anywhere. I love it. All right. Final question. If you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would yeah. you give yourself? First day internship advice. Um, gosh. Okay. So the advice I'll give myself is, is the same advice that my chair gave me. The telephone is your best friend. And number two, learn to organize and be efficient early on. And that's especially so with the 80-hour work week. Because if you're not efficient and your 80-hour work week's up, you have to pass that, you know, pass all the stuff that you didn't finish to the next person and they're going to hate you. (laughs) So so the two things I would would give the, the interns is if you think about calling, just call. Don't be afraid to call. Never be afraid to call, even if you think it's a, you're doing the right thing. Um, number two is be, be learn how to be efficient and organized very early on. Great. Uh, we got, everything else will come come together. Uh, there's fantastic career advice throughout this entire podcast today, um, and we really appreciate you joining us on Behind the Knife and taking us through uh, some of the basics of cardiac surgery. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy, happy to uh, to support this program, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me and. I hope this is uh, useful for for every level of the audience. It definitely is. And uh, we look forward to uh, smoking a cigar with you at the next uh, Academic Surgical Congress. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely stay in touch and let me know. Um, I'm happy to support other topics. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Until next time, dominate the day.
Until next time, dominate the day.